Let me pray for us again. God, we thank you for your love and your grace in our lives. What God is like our God, who loves this creation that he has made. Somewhat inexplicably, God, you look down from heaven upon this broken world that is marred by our sin and your heart is moved with compassion. And we thank you that out of compassion, you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins, to give his life that we might be redeemed. We thank you that you don't spurn us or shun us or turn us away, but that when we cry out to you, you are gracious. So Lord, just encourage our hearts this morning from your word. Lift us up. Draw us near, we pray, for your sake. Amen. Well, we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. So let me read this. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So look, these are uh, some notoriously difficult verses from 1 John, particularly in the original Greek. There's at least four issues. But since this isn't a Greek class, I'm not going to go into all of those issues. I just want to point out the big one that does concern us. Is John literally writing to children, fathers, and young men? Or is John using those words figuratively to speak to a wider audience that might be Christians at their various stages in their walk with Christ? Just to give you an idea of the difficulty, Augustine, one of the early church authors, a brilliant theologian, thought that this was to be taken figuratively. Calvin, who was another brilliant theologian who came much later, read these verses and thought that they were to be read literally. Um, I'm going to take the figurative approach because I think back in verse 1 of chapter 2 and again in verse 7 of this chapter, John has already addressed his audience and made it pretty clear who he's talking to. He calls them his little children and his beloved and so I think as he writes these verses, he has the entire church in mind. He wants to speak inclusively to all the children of God at various stages of the Christian experience. And look, as I said, the verses are sort of difficult, but the truth is, if you read these, they're not that difficult. I mean, I think you get it as you read it, don't you? Greek scholars may spend a lot of time debating, they may spill a lot of ink uh, discussing, and they should because somebody needs to do that. But for us, as we read these verses, I think it's quite simple. I think John has a real singular idea, and that is he wants to encourage the church. He wants to encourage 
his beloved children. I hope actually that your Bible puts these verses in a little bit different like a formatting in the text there. Mine has some different indentations. Uh, it's margins are typeset slightly differently. And I hope that your Bible does that. And the reason is because I don't think that these verses fit very well in the flow of what John has been doing. I think they're a bit of a side note. They're a tangent or a parenthesis in what he has been saying. I think John wants to take a detour here to encourage his little children in the faith, particularly because of what he has just written in the verses that we looked at last week, verses 9 through 11, or maybe even a little bit further back than that. John has said some really hard things leading up to these verses. Difficult things about love and hatred, light and darkness. And if you were here last week or you were tuning in via the live stream, maybe when I finished my teaching, you felt convicted. You felt Like, this is weighty. You felt maybe even discouraged over how difficult the Christian walk is. How lofty the call to love is that we have been given. But John doesn't want us to remain discouraged or in that frame of mind. He wants us to have confidence in God and be encouraged by God. And so John offers this encouragement to his beloved little children And so I hope this morning that these words will lift your soul, direct your eyes back to God. My wife recently reminded me of the power of encouraging words, the necessity of encouraging words, particularly coming from a father to his children. If you know me, then you know that I am not really a pet guy. It's not my thing. And for years, everyone else in my family has begged me to get a dog. And I have steadfastly held my ground. And my biggest obstacle is that I don't want to just, I just don't want to be responsible for pets. I don't want to shoulder that responsibility. I don't want to be the person to take care of the animals. But I finally caved after years of begging and I made a, an agreement with my children. I said to them, if you can keep our house perfectly clean for 30 straight days, then I will believe that you are responsible enough to have a pet. And the second day of our little agreement, we were sitting around the dinner table and they were just daydreaming about how wonderful it was going to be to have a dog. They were super excited. And my response to their excitement was to say to them, you guys have no idea how hard this is going to be. I don't think you're going to make it. I'm pretty sure you're going to fail. And later that night, of course, my wife gave me a gracious lesson in caring for the hearts of little children, explaining to me that a father needs to believe in his kids, a father needs to be encouraging, a father needs to lift up his children. And John understands the need that his beloved spiritual children have to get a healthy boost of encouragement by the way that he writes them. And so he takes this detour from his commands to love and he launches into these verses 12 through 14. Now the the repetition here I think is meant for um, emphasis. If you notice, there's sort of a pattern one, two, three, and then repeat one, two, three. And the encouragement is simple. John's reminding them that so much of the spiritual struggle 
that they will go through as Christians has already been taken care of by God himself. How encouraging is that? Brothers and sisters, so much of the difficulty that you will experience in walking with Jesus has already been provided for, taken care of through Christ. Yes, the Christian walk, it's hard. It's a war against an enemy who is evil and bent on destroying us. It's a constant fight against our own flesh, which is addicted to pleasure and comfort and self-indulgence. It's an uphill battle in a corrupt world that applauds and endorses sin. It's full of danger and toil and self-mortification. And the end goal often seems impossible because the end goal is to be perfect as our Heavenly Father himself is perfect. And in the midst of all of that, John writes his beloved children to remind them, your sins are already forgiven. This God you long for in your heart, you already know him. He has already provided intimacy through the Holy Spirit. The evil one you strive against, you've already overcome. You are strong because this word of God abides in you. In Greek, all of these statements are in the perfect tense. English doesn't have an exact equivalent, but essentially in the mind of John, they're already accomplished. It's a bit like the past tense. And like Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Because Christ himself has already won our salvation. He's ensured the outcome that our souls will be redeemed, that our bodies will be resurrected. And so the real hard part, God has already taken care of. So be encouraged. Now before we get into the encouragement in detail, I want to take a little side trail myself. And in a way, I hope that this is also encouraging, but I admit it will be uh, uh, differently encouraging. Look at verse 12. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. John puts a purpose clause attached to our forgiveness And I want to zoom in on that purpose clause for a moment. Why has God forgiven us of our sins? Why does God show his creatures this love that he has shown us in Christ? Well, there's lots of good reasons. Because he loves us, because he's compassionate and gracious, kind and merciful. But right here, John focuses on one very important reason above the others. I would say, in fact, that this is the primary reason why God does this. God forgives sinners for the sake of his own name. For the sake of his own name. Another way to say that is like this. God forgives sinners in his own interest. The word sake in English, or for the sake of, it is related to motivation. It explains why. In other words, God saves sinners for his own glory. 
This story actually is not about you. Be encouraged because you're not the main character. Be encouraged because you're not the hero. Be encouraged because you're not the center of the universe. The weight of the world is not on your shoulders. God is the center of this story. And that's how it should be. God is greatly glorified by his love for sinners. Everything that God has done in time and in eternity, the creation of the world, the choice of Israel to be his people, his providential rule over kingdoms and nations, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion he suffered on the cross, all of this has been done for God's sake, for the glory of his great name. It wasn't done primarily for you. Now, don't misunderstand. You are blessed because of it. Wonderfully blessed. You are loved and treasured by God. And that too brings him great glory. God's intention has always been to bless you through the pursuit of his own glory. But the story is about God. You are the recipient of the blessings secondarily. God seeking his own glory and acting for the sake of his name, that is the cause of our blessing. This is clear, I think, all throughout Scripture. Particularly, let me take you to a passage in Isaiah 48, verses 8 through 11, where God says this, You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, You were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned, declares God. My glory I will not give to another. And so the point is this. God works and acts for his glory. I see some of you trying to look that passage up. It's Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. God acts for his glory. And when God seeks his own glory, man is blessed. Man benefits when he humbles himself before this great God and is low before God. In God's glory is our greatest good if we are modest enough to admit that this is about God and we are not the center of the universe. He is the glorious one. And this should be encouraging because it puts God in the center of everything and takes all of the burden of the responsibility off of us. And it's encouraging because we know that God in his power will succeed in everything that he sets his mind to. Everything that he plans to do for the glory of his own name, he will accomplish. Unlike you, who often don't accomplish everything you set your mind to. And this is a big God. This is a big God who bends all of creation to his will. He even bends life and death to his purposes. History and all time and all events, God is shaping for his glory. 
What God intends for his name's sake, he will surely do. And we can be confident that when he accomplishes his will and achieves his glory, we, his beloved children, will benefit. We will reap the rewards for his name's sake. He will do good to his children in this process. Okay, now to the encouragement. Specifically, John speaks first to children. And what I want to do is, is bring the statements together, okay? So John says in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then at the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I think John is speaking here to believers at the beginning of their Christian experience. John has been teaching to his audience to love And here he reminds them of this love of God that first drew them to the Father. It was the Father's love that first gripped their hearts. The forgiveness of sins, having their eyes opened to the truth that there is a creator God and they are under his wrath, but he loves and forgives them. The great display of love that God has lavished upon mankind by sacrificing his own son to prove the depth of his affection. So that all who would come to God in repentance would find forgiveness of their sins and would find a God who loves them. That they might be called children of God. This is wonderful, good news. Comforting, winsome, attractive grace. This is the lure of true love, unconditional acceptance by a good father. Though our sins were as scarlet, God embraces us. He washes us clean. He loves us. I call this the love of necessity. When, like a little child, we acknowledge and realize we cannot do this on our own. And we see in the face of God loving acceptance and a promise to care for us. And we simply acknowledge before God that we, we need him. This is the beginning of the Christian experience when we see that God offers us forgiveness and he cares about us. So I want to speak to those of you who are at this stage in your Christian faith. Those of you who are new to the Christian walk and you're still basking in the warmth of this good news that God loves you. If you're in this childlike experience of your Christian faith, I want to encourage you simply to rejoice and also be resolved. Just enjoy this truth. God loves you. And you are forgiven of your sins. Gobble that up. Bask in the glory of that. Revel in that joy. Remember how winsome that was when you first came to understand it. Soak it up so that it becomes a firm foundation for your entire Christian experience. And then gird up your heart and be resolved that whatever challenges or difficulties come your way, You won't forget this love. You will not turn away from this God. Be resolved that this joy that you now experience in knowing God, that you will walk in this 
pass until the very end. No matter what challenges might come your way. Tragically, many have felt the warmth of the light of God's grace, but failed to walk in that light until the end of their journey. And in turning away, they've plunged themselves into tragic misery and ruin. Don't let that be your story. Rejoice in Christ's love for you and be resolute. Be determined like a little child to cling to his hand until he brings you all the way home. Next, John speaks to fathers in verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then again in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I don't think that John is speaking to older folks here, like I've already mentioned. I think he's primarily speaking to those who have walked with God for many years. This is the experience of long companionship and friendship with God that produces a sure and confident rest in God's goodness, in this God who is unchanging. These are folks who from the beginning have tested God and proved Him to be true, seen that He is unshakable and always faithful, a sure and steady foundation upon which they've been able to build their lives and He has not failed them. These are the Christians among us who spent long years under the loving care of God the Father and have found that His Word is sure. His promises are true. He is faithful in all things He's comforted them when they were hurting. He's nourished them when they were weary. He's wept with them when they wept. He's filled their hearts with joy. He's blessed them for their faithfulness, their trust in Him. And He's bound up their wounds. He's filled them with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And they've come to learn what Moses declares there in Psalm 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. These are believers who know God. They know His mercy, His compassion and tenderness. They know His loving discipline. They know His life-giving spirit. I would call this the love of persistence. Their persistent pursuit of God has yielded the ripe fruit of a deep maturity in Christ. And so let me speak to those in this room who are in this stage in their Christian walk because I've got an application for you as well. Like a father who might teach his own beloved children, I want you to encourage the rest of us with what you know and what you've learned. Remind us of what you have seen firsthand. Be bold among the children of God to soothe our anxious souls as you call us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and remember his goodness and you share your testimony of his grace. God has given you and the journey that you've been on, he's given you to the church as a great gift to the rest of us who are still in the thick of it that we might be reminded through your testimony that God is faithful. Call us into faith by sharing your experience of God's 
sovereign goodness in your life. Specifically, this might look like taking a younger person or a new believer, a less seasoned disciple, take them under your wing, maybe a younger couple, and encourage them with what you know. Lift them up before the Lord. Or maybe it's as simple as being faithful to pray for the church, to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got a lot of young families in this church. And I hope that those of you who are more seasoned followers of Jesus pray for these younger folks. I'm sure if you asked them, they would confess they need it. And so even as you rest in God's goodness, go to work among the people of God. God has not called you to retire your faithfulness yet. Encourage the people of God. We need you. Finally, John speaks to the young men. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I just want to reiterate that grammatically in the Greek, these verses are in the past tense. They're in the perfected form. God's sovereign power ensures that those who are united to him with Christ are already victorious over the evil one. Jesus has already won the victory in an ultimate sense. You know that. But John feels the need to write this encouragement to remind those of us who are still really in the thick of the struggle. And that's what I think we have here. We've got sort of the middle stage of our Christian walk, where we are fighting with every fiber of our being to resist sin, to die to ourselves, and to walk in holiness. And I'm guessing that probably most of us in this room feel like we're in this stage. And so I think it deserves a little bit more exposition here. The church has always called this stage sanctification. Hopefully that's a word that if you've been hanging around Maricopa Springs for a while, you're beginning to come familiar with. Sanctification. Justification is the beginning of our relationship with God. Where we become saved and we realize that God has gone to great lengths to redeem our souls from sin. And we've been made right with God. That's justification. Justification is followed by this long, arduous journey of sanctification where God uses trials and suffering, temptations and hardship, struggles and difficulties to grow our holiness, to grow our trust in Him so that over time we come to look like Jesus loving righteousness and doing good for the glory of God the Father. And this is a fight for holiness. And it's a fight indeed, isn't it? Nobody's nodding their head, so maybe I'm the only one who has that experience. Guys, it's challenging. And I call this the love of passion. It's a tumultuous love that wages war against the flesh and the darkness in order to be a conqueror through Christ Jesus. And John tells us two resources that we have for this fight 
Again, this won't be a surprise to any of you who've been hanging around Maricopa Springs. The first one is found in the reminder to be strong and that we are strong. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 6 in the same kinds of militant terms when he tells Christians, put on the full armor of God. There Paul exhorts Christians to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That it is God who will provide this strength. So it's the spirit of Jesus that is our first weapon in our fight for sanctification. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. It empowers us to resist temptation. It stirs our hearts with God's desires. It strengthens our resolve to flee from sin. And it enables us to walk in righteousness. And we resist sin and we grow in holiness through grace. That's the power of God enabling us to do what we cannot do by our own strength. The second resource in this struggle is the Word of God. How can we know what God delights in unless He explains it to us? How can we know the direction that we should walk unless God puts a light to our path? How can we even know who God is unless He discloses Himself to us? How do we keep up the good fight and finish the race? Psalm 119 verse 9 has a correlation here in addressing young men. And it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. And friends, this is why we're people of the book. This is why you need to have a Bible. If you don't have one, take one on the way out. This is why you need to read it and not just keep it on your shelf. This is why we hunger for good teaching. And we immerse ourselves in the scriptures We meditate on it and we seek to conform our lives to what it teaches. Apart from the Holy Spirit, this is the greatest resource that we have as Christians to finish this race. To succeed in being conformed into the image of Christ. And the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Word of God. And so these two things are intricately bound together. So if you're in this stage of your Christian walk, if you're in the midst of the fight, still clinging tooth and nail to Jesus Christ, still looking desperately to God for his deliverance, then here's my application, here's my encouragement for you. Don't lose heart. Press on. John reminds us the victory is already ours through Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors. We've already been crucified with Christ. The old nature is dead, buried. We've been raised with Christ to new life. So keep up the fight and don't surrender. In particular, cling to the living word of God. Draw close to it. Abide in the teachings of Jesus, which can deliver you from darkness and bring you safely home teaching you to stand firm in grace. Know this book. Meditate on it. Treasure it. Now as I close, I want to make just one final point. John speaks to Christians at various stages in their Christian walk as they're growing and they're changing and they're being conformed to the image of Jesus. 
But he's in no way suggesting that God changes. And this is really important. He's only explaining that our connection to God matures and ripens as we walk beside Jesus. In other words, as we grow, our understanding of God, our view of God also grows. But God is ever the same. He himself is unchanging. And it makes me think of that wonderful scene by C.S. Lewis in the book Prince Caspian. If you've read it, maybe you know this scene. The little girl Lucy, who's one of the main characters, returns to this land called Narnia. And there she sees Aslan again for the first time in a long time. And Aslan, of course, is the lion who in these books represents the Christ figure. And she says to him, Aslan, you're bigger. And he replies, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. I am not, says Aslan, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a beautiful picture. God is unchanging, but God grows us. And as he grows us, we come to see him more fully. God does not become smaller, as if as we grow, eventually we will reach his size and see him eye to eye like a child eventually grows to see his mother or father. No. We grow to understand God's bigness and grandeur a little bit more each day. But as we grow, we find him bigger and bigger. Always he fills our vision. From that first moment of birth into his kingdom when we began to understand his love and kindness and the forgiveness of our sins. Through this passionate struggle for holiness when he holds our hand and he fights there alongside of us, to full maturity when we finally learn to just rest in his grace. The one who is ever faithful from the beginning. Every year that we grow, we will find him bigger. Let's pray. God, would you be with us in these different stages? Lord, would you give us great joy in the love that we've received from you, the forgiveness of sins? And would it be a firm foundation that we stand on through this journey of sanctification? And God, would you be with us and fight for us and go before us and behind us, walk with us, hold our hands as we rebuff the evil one and deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you and father would you lead us to the place where we rest in the one that we've known from the beginning who has been ever faithful lord i pray that you would keep our eyes transfixed on you that you would fill our vision ever more as we see you bigger and bigger in christ's name for his sake amen